Welcome to the Forum Storytellers Podcast. This is Forum President and CEO Brian Whalen. Forum Storytellers shares and preserves stories about life and work in the field of education abroad. I hope that you enjoy the stories featured in this podcast. Okay, Mickey. How, how did you enter the education abroad field? It's, a, it, it's an interesting story that I've shared at some career workshops because I get the impression now that a lot of people that are entering the field are seriously preparing to enter the field. They go to um, graduate school, they take certain programs, which is wonderful. But in the era that I joined the field, there was little or nothing available for people that thought of it. And sometimes we all enter the field quite accidentally. So I am more of an accidental study abroad person. I had been in the home with four children uh, until 1981 when my oldest daughter went away to college and I decided we needed an extra income (laughs) because there were three more behind her. And besides that, I just really was tired of playing tennis and redecorating the house Mm -hmm. and I had a master's degree. I just wanted something a little bit more in my life. Looked in the paper and saw an ad for a transcript clerk at Hamlin University and I thought, I love higher education and uh, this would be a great place to start because registrar's offices are the nerve center of any university. And so I went in and applied for the position and the personnel director, that was what they were called in those days, not human resources, interviewed me and he said, well, you're perfect, you're way overqualified. This is an entry-level position at minimum wage. And I said, I have to start someplace I haven't worked in 18 years. And so he says, well, fine. And he told me that the uh, assistant registrar was planning to retire the following May and that if it worked out and I enjoyed the job and I would be a logical candidate to succeed her. And I thought, well, I'll play this hand and we'll see what happens. So he gave me the job and I went to work in an entry-level position. I learned so much and probably one of the most valuable things I learned was how to read a foreign transcript. And um, so the spring came and the job was posted and I applied for the position and I felt really confident because I thought I had done a really good job. And a Friday afternoon came and... uh, They called and said, well, we're sorry to tell you, but we've hired somebody else for the position. And it was the dean's wife, and she worked in the office with me part-time. And so I was very disappointed, but realistic. And I thought about it over the weekend, and on Sunday I went to the florist and I bought a bouquet of flowers, got a card. And so when she came to work on Monday morning, I had a bouquet of flowers and a congratulations card on her desk. Monday afternoon, the phone rings, and it's the dean. Would you have time to come up to my office for a minute? I said, sure. You don't turn the dean down. So I walk in the office, and there's the president, the dean, several high administrative level, and the director of the International Studies Center. And he says, please take a seat. And the dean started out by saying, I really appreciate how nice you were to my wife. It demonstrates your diplomacy. And, oh, by the way, would you like to be the associate director of the International Studies Center? I looked around the table, and I I literally could not believe what I was hearing. And I think the fact that 
you can demonstrate and, I guess, turn lemons into lemonade is a fact that I like to share with people. I like to think that my career in study abroad started with a bouquet of flowers and a congratulations card, and little did I know what was ahead of me. And how would you describe your career? Absolutely amazing. Uh, it was a fantastic and amazing run, and at the time I stood in that office accepting the position from the president, I had absolutely no idea where it would lead me over the years. I was what you would say probably a non-traditional entry into the field because I had never studied abroad, and I told them that. I didn't even own a passport, and they all looked around and they said, yes, but you can learn. And we have a travel grant for January term. You can pick any of the J-term programs and you'll have your study abroad experience. <laughs> Again, I was absolutely amazed that they would take the chance on me. And where did you go abroad then? I did what you tell students not to do. <laughs> uh, I picked the one that went to the most countries because what I could do, and of course this is before the internet, this is 19, 1983, January of 1983. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to visit as many countries and cities as I could because what I did was I set up appointments with study abroad uh, people in each of those countries. And so while the students had lectures and did things like that, I would visit programs. And so I got kind of an instant crash course uh, in providers overseas, centers, people that I was working with. So it was, um, it, for me, it was an amazing experience to be on that J-term, not only just because it gave me an opportunity to travel abroad, but it also... Uh, and I'll get to this later, it also started a love affair with short-term programs. Huh? Great. And how would you describe the field, you know, then when you came into it in the early 80s versus the way it is today? Oh, my goodness. Um, in some ways, it's, it's not much different than it is today. And in other ways, it's just hugely different. Today, it's so much easier to do your job because of the communications level. Um, when I came in, it took three weeks, if you were lucky, to get a letter to France. You couldn't really make an overseas phone call. We had what was called a Watts line, and it was locked up, and you had, in order to call any place in the U.S., not just overseas, you had to go to the dean's office, you sign out the key to the Watts line, and go and make your long-distance phone call. No computers, no computers, of course. I had a typewriter and I had um, a 10-hour-a-week work-study student. And uh, that was how we, so we did you, our work. So you did internet. Did you do advising? Yes, yes. So, so I would think advising would be so much easier now because of the information available now. Well, you used to have to go to a book, and if you wanted to find out about a program, you'd have to go to the Whole World Handbook, or I don't even know what was available. Then. There were several. Yep. Uh, Peterson's Guide um, would have uh, some. And, of course, print media became very, very precious. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that was very, very precious was the visits of road warriors. Yeah. Their visits were an occasion because there weren't that many of them. Mm -hmm. And that is where those of us, especially those of us in one-person offices, which we had to know it all, and we had to learn on the job because there was no training sessions or things like that. We, we were creating it as we went. 
And so the visits from the program representatives were always an amazing time to get their feel of what was going on in the field, ask them questions, even if it's totally unrelated to their program and what they were providing for us. Um, I could count on them to bring me up to speed if I had questions on things. And so there was this great trust relationship that developed, I think, in those days, more than I see now, a real trust relationship between the provider representatives that visited our campus and the study abroad advisors because they were the source of information and not just about their own programs. And there were so few of them. There were so few of them, yes, that's exactly it. There were so few of them that made the rounds. Mm -hmm. And so they were valued colleagues and and mentors, tremendous Mm -hmm. mentors in the field. Mm -hmm. How did you learn about the profession? Um, Well, I learned about it when I started work in the transcript office or in the registrar's office doing transcripts because I would help the study abroad person, the person I replaced. They would sometimes bring in transcripts and we'd have to evaluate them together. And so I learned about just kind of on the periphery this field and having not studied abroad myself because I went to college in the 50s, and frankly, there was no study abroad available, at least at my college. I'd never heard of it before. So, so this is a fun part. T- tell me a little about your mentors. And, and oh, my mentors, yes. I have a number of mentors, and, and, and at different parts of my life in study abroad, they were extremely important, and, and still I maintain great friendships with them. I guess my first mentor in the field was probably most people's mentor in the field, and that would be Tom Roberts. And he was representing um, Beaver College programs at that time. And we used his programs at Hamlin, and so he would come and visit me on a regular basis, and we became great and good friends. Uh, And I really valued his friendship and his wisdom. I could really depend on him. If I had a question, and he was one of those people with an 800 number, because if you remember, if you have to get a key to a Watts line, you want something with an 800 number that you can call from your desk. And so he would uh, always encourage me to call with any kinds of questions, not necessarily just about the programs he represented, but any kind of questions. I ended up working for him later, uh, which was a real treat to be because he and I kind of were on the same wavelength. I don't know if that's a good thing to reveal in this interview or not, but <laughs> we, we, we thought very similarly. In what way? How did you feel? Uh, well, mostly because if you know Tom, uh, you know he's incredibly loyal to the field and he's incredibly loyal to his friends. And I thought that was an important kind of virtue to have if you were going to make a success in this field, is it's about friendships and networks and loyalty and trust. And those were things that I learned very early on from Tom. And then another mentor in the field is, interestingly enough, my husband. (laughs) Because I got to know him when he was chair of SACUSA, for those who don't know Marvsland, because uh, he's been out of the field since 89. But uh, he was very active in the field, a chair of Sakusi. He was one of the um, co-editors of the very first guide to study abroad with John Pearson and Bill Hoffa. And uh, I met him because I was the Region 4 Sakusa representative. And so I would see him at national conferences, and we just hit it off. We became really good friends and colleagues. And he had a vast knowledge of study abroad, and uh, 
So whenever I had a question or was concerned, I would ask him, and we just enjoyed each other's company, and who knew that uh, years later we would um, get married. Like you, Bill, there are a lot of people that were mentors at different times in my life, but there's one other person that I do want to mention, and that's Al Balcom. And I worked for Al at the University of Minnesota for four years. And he taught me so much about how to deal with administrative issues. He was a genius at higher education and getting (coughs) what he wanted for his unit and using resources to the best of his ability. And he would frequently take me to high-level meetings as what he called his second chair. Because if you're involved in meetings, you may not hear everything that's being said because you're so busy getting ready to make your remarks. And he said I was his eyes and ears. And so he really taught me so much about the nuts and bolts of how higher education works. And so later on when I was working with universities as a program representative, I brought a skill set to my campus visits that few program representatives would have. And I spent many, many days on campuses helping study abroad advisors achieve their internal goals rather than just promoting the programs I was there for because I had learned so much about how to do that. Interesting. Do you think it's still done like that now? Do you think um, people are working... You said you helped study abroad advisors on their own goals as opposed to just uh, promoting the program. Is there some of that going on now? I I would hope that there is because I've given a lot of how to market study abroad program workshops. In fact, I was with Tom Roberts in the early ones and helped create the, um, the information and resources that we had in the marketing workshop, and I presented in it for years. And in my retirement, I've done a lot of consulting jobs, and one of the things I do is I, I go in and I train uh, program representative staffs of smaller providers, and one of the things we always talk about is not just a matter of selling, and I've got quotes mm-hmm. about around that, selling your programs, but it's providing a service. Again, the network and the whole trust mm-hmm. relationships uh, uh, service to the people you're visiting. You can't just go and take, but you have to give something back. That's a philosophy I have about being a program representative. And so if people are aware of the skills that you have, you can sometimes, as a distant prophet, mm-hmm. you can have a meeting with, I've met with presidents, I've met with deans, I've met with chairs of departments, and by meeting with the study abroad advisor first and finding out what they want and what their goals are and what they're trying to get out of their administration, you can achieve amazing things like extra staff being hired, allocation of additional resources, all kinds of things that they couldn't do it on their own. Well, if you can manage that on a campus for a study abroad office, can you only imagine the kind of trust and relationship you can build with those campuses? And so I felt I was always helping them, and then hopefully by helping them, they would think of us in a good light when it came to selecting programs. Just turning a different track, what, what did you want to be when you grew up, or, or what did you think you wanted to be? 
Oh, I knew exactly what I wanted to okay. be, and I was I never able to achieve it. You know, second you were baseman. a second baseman. No, 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 I wasn't <laughs> second baseman. I wanted to be in the foreign service so badly. And so all through college, I was preparing for the foreign service exam. And a uh, history major, I had two languages. Um, but you have to put this into context. I graduated from college in 1960, went on to graduate school. Mm-hmm. And in the spring of 1961, I took, or the fall of 1960, I took the foreign service exam. Passed it, took the language exam in French, passed it, and went for an interview. I walked in, and there were three suits there. And here I was, a female, mm-hmm. and it was spring of 1961. Well, well, that answers the question. You know where I'm going with this, I'm sure. And so um, I felt I did a good job in the interview. I knew all the answers. Um, so after the interview was over, um, I went out into the anteroom. And, of course, I'm the only woman in the anteroom. All the other applicants are male. I had gone to an all-female high school and college, and so no one ever told me I couldn't do something. And so they invited me back in, and they said, well... You've done really well, and uh, but we're prepared to offer you a secretarial position. And I looked at them, and I said, a secretarial position? That's not the position I'm applying for. I'm a foreign service officer. It, well, you have to understand, we just don't have any room for females. And this was before the, yeah. you know, Equal yeah, Rights Amendment. It was, I, and I was, I sat there, and I had been preparing for this moment for, Ten years, at least. Everything I had worked for mm. was sitting there in three striped suits mm. telling me that I wasn't good enough for a foreign service position, but I could work as a secretary. Mm. I don't mean in any way to demean the role of secretary because mm. some of the oh. most wonderful people I've ever worked with have been administrative staff. But at the same time, to just come to the conclusion that your government doesn't think you're good enough because you're a woman, that was the end of it. I stood up and I said, no, I'm sorry, I'm not interested in your secretarial position. Thank you very much. And I walked out. And it wasn't until years later when my dream actually became true in another way with education abroad. And in retrospect, I am absolutely delighted that happened because I've shared that story, obviously, with my daughters and with most of the women I've ever visited because it's all about realizing your goals and they may not be exactly what you want, but never take no for an answer as a female. I want to explore this a little bit um, because I think it's an important issue. So I, I would like to ask your opinion on... And I, I have an opinion, but this is your interview. Uh, do you feel that sexism in, in this field is, is still there? Because that's not the field the foreign service isn't, but just turning to this field. Yes. Are the best jobs held by men? Uh, is it, what's the reason for that, if that's the case? And do you find that there is sexism? And who, who's doing all the work? Um, is it women or is it men? Is it the pay issue? Or, it's or changing. Okay. It's changing. And it's, it's a glacial change, but it is changing. I would say that 20 years ago, and the statistics will bear me out, that 90% of the field was female, mm-hmm. and they were mostly in the trenches. Mm-hmm. And most of the director positions and up mm-hmm. uh, were held by males. 
Uh, however, that has been changing because of aggressive and assertive females with appropriate educational training and experience have been able to push the field in the direction of more equal opportunities for women in the field. When I come to the conferences and I look around and when I read through the attendee list and I see people that I mentored 20 years ago who have gone on to get their PhDs, uh, mm -hmm. mainly females, uh, and I see them now, directors and presidents of uh, big organizations, and I am just so gratified mm -hmm. to see this change within my lifetime because the doors were closed for women of my age, mm -hmm. but they aren't mm -hmm. for that yeah. generation. And hopefully some of what we stood up for and said enough, um, mm -hmm. They're reaping the benefits of it. Yeah, we, we, yeah. And, and, and the beginning when I would go to meetings uh, in the 80s, and even without welcome, and when I worked briefly at a, a University of Idaho, I would go to a meeting, and I would be the only female in the room out of 12 directors or deans. It's tiresome. Mm -hmm. Where are the other women, really? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as I see this gradual change, it's... Tremendously exciting for me to see, having lived through the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I've seen it in my own organization. No. I mean, when I came in, we had no upper-level female managers. We just, we just didn't, mm -hmm. and now we have 50%. So what motivates your work in uh, education abroad? <laughs> At this point, I just can't seem to get away with it. <laughs> I, I uh, retired 11 years ago. And who knew that people wanted me to help them out as a consultant? Right. I had absolutely no intention of being a consultant. I was going to retire mm -hmm. and just, you know, go on with my life in a different direction. And I realized uh, after a month or two of people calling me, mm -hmm. saying, would you do this for us, would mm -hmm. you do that for us, that I carry around in my head an enormous amount right. of data and history. And part of that maybe because I was in a unique position uh, over much of my career yeah. where there were significant changes being made. I helped to um, produce and create some interesting kinds of um, workshops, the first evers of like health and safety and insurance and short term programs and marketing and everything. And so as a result, I can bring together a unique, unique skill set. <coughs> my motivation is to hopefully impart some of this experience and so it can carry it on so people don't have to reinvent the wheel. And did you always uh, like your job? I loved my job, yes. And there were some difficult times, mm -hmm. of course. But, no, I loved... So would you say you loved the field or you liked your job more? I mean, what? All of the above. I found out when I started higher education that I am one of the few people you may ever meet in your life who absolutely adores administration. Hmm. And, and I love the idea that you have a challenge and a goal and you figure out how to get to the, the goal. And that includes consensus, persuasion all kinds of skills. No matter what part of my career we're talking about, mm -hmm. it still had to do with administration, whether my administration on a campus or somebody else's administration when I was working on the road. Mm -hmm. I love the challenge. 
So if you could have any job now, would you want to go to the Foreign Service now? Or is it <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe <laughs> if it was Scandinavia or someplace. I'm not sure I wanted to be posted to Iraq. <laughs> uh, you know, it's always been something in the back of your head. Yeah. That, you know, you wonder the what ifs. What, yeah. what if I would have had that opportunity? There's and always a path in life, you know. There is a path. It's amazing, like, you know, this doesn't matter, but I always, you know, study abroad, yeah, but there's a part of me that says if I was an investigative journalist, would I have been, you know, Bob Woodward, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a part of me that says, yeah, hey, maybe I should have done this, but but you're happy with what you're doing now. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's the key. Well, and, and you know, I'm um, Irish, and the Irish have a word for this, and it's called fae, F-E-Y, mm. and that means that it's fate. And I am a firm believer in the powers of fate. And you are where you're supposed to be. So, you're not really retired, I guess. But <laughs> well, I am. You are officially retired, but you seem to be, you have your fingers in a lot of pots, let's say. I mean, you're, you're active in the field still. Uh, well, I, no, I wouldn't say active okay. in the field itself as more continuing to mentor some of my mentees and to just um, maybe if people call and they need a project done and it looks interesting I do have the power to say yes or no which in other parts of your life you may not be able to do and so I'm kept in the field only because of my interest and commitment to it. And you'll continue to do this while it interests you? Absolutely and if it doesn't anymore then I'll go on to something else. I mean you, you must have it like I do, a tremendous number of stories. But have you f- found a couple that would be? I have. I have one that happened on the very first overseas trip I took in in January term of 1983, and it's it's still I think remains the funniest study abroad story. I was traveling with a group of 17 students, and I was the staff person with a leader from another college. And it was the European Cities of Modernism. And so it was primarily a literature course and a very, very good leader. And there was this one young woman who was inadequately intellectually prepared for the trip. Is that a polite way to say that? And we had stopped overnight in Salzburg, Austria. And there was a concert, Mozart concert being presented, of course, Mozart in Salzburg. And so the leader got up and said, uh, well, there's a Mozart concert tonight. Would anybody like to go along? Mickey and I are going, uh, and we'll get tickets for anyone who wants to go. And this little voice in the back of the room piped up and said, I thought Mozart was dead. Mm, great. <laughs> <laughs> Never having been to a concert that wasn't a live concert. Right. So, so is study abroad not for everyone? Yes. <laughs> Well, let's hope that she learned a little bit on that. That was the same trip where we were at the Berlin Wall, which, of course, this is 1983, so we had gone into West Berlin. And another person in that particular group said, what's this wall thing all about? And I thought, okay, it's a teachable moment. And as a historian, I thought, uh, and the leader of the group was uh, a literature person, and so he looked at me and he says, you're on. (laughs) What's this small thing all about? But that reinforces the fact that short-term programs will attract students that perhaps don't have the same kind of commitment to a semester or year-long program. But... I, I know 
that the students that finished that month-long program right. with us went away changed, changed and, and in many, many different ways. And so, as I said, I've become a true believer over the years. I mean, that's the way that it's going. You that's have no right. choice. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you, Absolutely. There are not going to be people going abroad in big numbers for a year no. anymore. That's no. And this was back in 83, right. and all of that was true in 1983 right. as right. well. Mm-hmm. And then it became my passion as I, I grew myself in the field mm-hmm. to provide the best quality short-term programming that you could possibly do. And that actually became one of my goals in life, mm-hmm. is to whatever I could do to pr- promote that. Mm-hmm. So, so let's talk about those moments that you were proudest of. You've done a lot of things in your career. What are the two or three things that you've done, your legacy, let's say, the my things legacy. you've done that you, you would say, that's how I want people to remember my contribution to the field. As you well know, Bill, um, one of the things that I think still is pervasive today is that um, short-term programming is less. Mm-hmm. Um, there's certainly, uh, in some quarters, there's an intellectual bias against short-term Absolutely. programs. Yeah. And that's something I've worked for 30 years now to try and overcome. And, and perhaps we never will. And, and there's a case to be made for both sides. So I don't mean to say that one way is better. I'm a firm believer in different strokes for different folks. And so let's try and do it all, your models, as best as we possibly can. And so um, back in, I'm going to go back into 1991. And uh, Bill Hoffa was chair-elect of SACUSA. And so in that capacity, he was working on the program for the 1992 conference in, in Chicago. And short-term programming was just starting to kind mm-hmm. of bubble up and try and make a place for itself within the field. Mm-hmm. And it was getting a lot of resistance. Mm-hmm. But he knew that I was a strong proponent of short-term programs and trying to improve the quality. And he called me and he said, I've got three proposals for short-term sessions at the conference, but they're all individual. He says, this is the plan, because he knew I was doing short-term programs at the University of Minnesota at the time. He says, I know your dedication, so I'm going to turn all of these down. And then you're going to wait 10 days. And then you're going to call each of the people who proposed <laughs> and say, you know, let's, yeah. let's put a panel together. That's exactly it. That that it was a great scheme. And great so, so he says, would you chair it? If, and then call them and say, you've been turned down, but we really like the idea. Because they each had a different approach to short terms. Would have made right. a brilliant panel, but they didn't know each other. And that's part of what was happening in short term. People who were doing short term didn't know who they were. <laughs> and so I said, sure, that sounds great. So waited the 10 days called each of them and sure they were very willing and so this is like early November by the time we get it all together and I'm going to bring my daughter into this so so we're at Thanksgiving dinner and my daughter for people who don't know that uh, is Martha Johnson from the University of Minnesota and so uh, she was sitting at Thanksgiving dinner and I was talking about the panel that we were going to do on short-term programs and she was working for Regents College at the time, and she looked at me and she says, well, first of all, you don't have a female on that program. Mm-hmm. 
Good for you, Martha. And you don't have anybody young, and you don't have anybody talking about promoting short-term programs, marketing them. And I said, so you're asking me to put you on the panel? And she said, yes. I said, fine. <laughs> so, so I put her on the panel as well. So it, it helps to know somebody, right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> but she shamed me into doing it. And at that time, when you had a session proposal for NASA, you had to tell them the estimated or they would assign you a room. Well, they assigned us a room that held 35 people. And I called them and I said, I don't think that's going to be enough um, because, you. oh, no, it's short-term. Nobody's going to come to this. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Which gives you an idea. It sets the scene Bias. for the time. And so I, oh, fine, you know, they'll give us a room for 35. So we show up, the panel and me, we show up. And there are 95 people. They were out in the hall with the doors open. Uh, everyone was stressed out because the fire marshal was going to be upset about that because there were so many people in the room. They were sitting all over the floor. They were standing. They, they were hanging from the ceilings. They were sitting behind the panel table. I had never seen anything like that before or since. And so the panel did a wonderful job, all four of them. They were just great. And at the end of it, we were taking questions and answers, and somebody from the thing, the audience said, you need to make this a workshop, you know, you need to make this a workshop. Will you do that next year in San Francisco? And there I am at the lectern going, really? <laughs> you want me to do this? And so I promised them all, and they gave me their business cards. I said, if you are interested in a workshop, because I knew I would have to have proof to NAFSA and to the Conference Planning Committee that there was indeed enough interest to create a workshop for short-term programs. And so uh, I asked everybody to give me their business cards, so I had a stack. I must have had 80 business cards mm -hmm. of people that said they would come to a, a short-term workshop if we put it together. The next thing to do, of course, is to pro propose a workshop for the next year in San Francisco. And in brainstorming with some of my friends and with folks at the University of Minnesota, we realized that there was really very little in the way of written resources. Now, Bill, you've said you're a, a print person. Yeah. Well, you looked for a file drawer, and there was nothing there for short-term right. programs. There was literally nothing there to help you develop or manage or mm -hmm. any of the kinds of problems and challenges you might run into. So mm -hmm. it dawned on me that if you could get enough presenters into a... And they would only give me a four-hour workshop. I'd already been told that. It was not all day, only four hours. If you could jam into the four hours as many presenters as you could, and you gave them each a 10-minute limit, mm -hmm. but the condition was that they had to create mm -hmm. the written materials for that particular topic, we would walk away from the workshop with a workbook that at least was the beginning. And, of course, it was the beginning. Everybody knows that the, mm -hmm. we're going into the third printing now of the guide to managing a short-term program book that NAPSA has published over the years. And so that's what we did, but it was a battle because sure. NAPSA had a policy that there were no to be no more than four presenters at a workshop, and I said, I don't care what you think, this is what we need to do. And so we made it happen, and I had people that turned out to be huge leaders in the field later and some of them I didn't even know, but I knew that they were doing short-term programs when they had a specific skill and interest. So we covered health and safety, marketing, 
uh, homestays, um, uh, and the whole long list of everything that you would look at, content, faculty training, um, logistics. And so I just cold called people that I had never even met and asked them if they would please contribute 10 minutes to this workshop and pages of what they were, a transcript literally of what they were going to talk about. It was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. I am so proud of those 10 presenters because they did an amazing job. And of course, the next year, it's history because the next year, they sold it out in like within a day or two of when um, the workshop registration went open because there was just this untapped interest in the field. And so then the next year, we ran a full-day workshop, had many of the same people back, expanded the contributions. And then after a few years of um, every year offering this as a pre-conference workshop, they realized that there was <laughs> you know, profit to be made in producing a book. And I was, at that time, I was so busy with my job, and I was in the chair stream for Sakusa, and there was no way I could take on another project. But I had two very good friends who I trusted implicitly, Sarah Spencer and Kathy Tuma, who worked had worked with UMA and the J-Term programs and knew that inside and out. And I said, over a napkin at the Ole store in Northfield, Minnesota, I said, ladies, this is what we need to do. Would you be willing to be editors? And they did. And they edited the first copy. And now we're going into the third <coughs> printing. And I did contribute. Um, uh, to the first two editions, I did contribute a chapter in health and safety. Okay. I, I, the bias was amazing towards short. It was. It seems crazy in retrospect. I mean, I think one thing we forget in the field is that students make the market. We, we don't make the market. Absolutely. We, and, Couldn't agree with it's you hysterical more. whenever I hear someone say, well, we should make the students. The students should do this. They go, oh, yeah? <laughs> what and about... Then, and then okay. I, I want to expand on another thing because sure. the other one of the proudest moments of my career is another one that was, uh, I believe, in 1989 or thereabouts. And it was when NASA was still giving best of regions. I don't know if you remember that or not, but when you, you know, they would vote at the regional level and vote on the sessions that people liked the most, and then the best of region would be sent to national. And uh, it was it uh, it was really in the heights of the AIDS um, epidemic. And I was working at the University of Minnesota, and I realized it was really, really difficult to develop materials for students for sexual orientation and preference. And um, there were so many biases and prejudices against students, and even with faculty and administration and everything. And so what I wanted to do was bring um, a gay person that I knew who was a study abroad advisor, and I asked him if he would be willing to come to the conference and um, participate in the uh, um, how to orient, orient students for study abroad from the perspective of uh, a gay or lesbian person. I certainly didn't feel confident in doing that myself, and I just felt that it was a crisis in study abroad at the time. And I did persuade him. At first he said, no, absolutely not. I will not do that. And then about 10 days later, he called me up, and he says, are you still open? And I said, anytime you are. Mm -hmm. And so I had him, I had a person of color, and I had someone who was um, really knowledgeable about um, female uh, vulnerability in Latin America with the monkey small uh, mm -hmm. attitudes towards female. So we had a very irregular mm -hmm. kind of session. 
And at the end of the session, and I had my friend uh, who was gay on as the last speaker, and at the end of the session, it was packed. There had to be 60 people packed into this room, sitting on the floor again, all over the place. And there wasn't a sound at the end of the session. And I thought, we've overstepped the boundaries, we've gone too far. And then slowly, I may cry here, <laughs> slowly, slowly, I was standing at the podium and thinking, okay, what do I do now? I'm at a loss for words because the audience or the session goers slowly all got to their feet and they gave everyone on the panel a standing ovation because what they had opened, done was open the dialogue. Sure. What year was it? 88 or 89, probably 89. It was not on the national radar at that point. Nobody was talking about it, and yet we were sending all these thousands of students overseas every year with no orientation for certain really dangerous areas. And so um, I just stood there, and I literally, people in the audience were crying. And it was probably one of the most powerful times in my career. And it brought home to me that you need to take risks when you're talking about topics, when you're trying to do the best for your students, because it all comes down to the students. That's what I was worried about, is the students. We were not giving them the information they needed. And again, how do we get it? Well, we have to have people who are willing to commit to doing this from their own perspective on how we do work with students, and, and that actually became kind of a starting point for me, too, on getting involved in the whole issue of health and safety and insurance and risk liability, which I did a lot of when I was at the University of Minnesota, a lot of. Most satisfaction in your life, professional life? Um, as a consultant, I have projects that have a beginning and an end, and I love bringing a successful conclusion for my clients, so, you know, still have a great deal of satisfaction in what I do. And, and one of the things I, I wanted to insert somewhere along the way is, uh, and I guess this is a good place to put it, is years and years ago when I was at Hamlin, um, my students used to call me the dream merchant because you do make people's dreams come true when you're in study abroad. And I think sometimes we get so caught up in the logistics and mechanics and the academic and everything, we don't stop and think about the fact that students have dreams, and students of all ages. I mean, I've dealt with very non-traditional students over the years in my programs, and they have dreams. And, so we are indeed dream merchants. Uh, and do you have a final message? Uh, since this thing will be around forever, this, this interview, <laughs> what would you like to impart to the field? Oh, have fun. This is the most fun job in the world. Mm-hmm. Because as I said, you get to help people fulfill their dreams. You meet absolutely fabulous colleagues. And you get to travel the world. 50 countries and counting. (laughs) Great. On the next Forum Storytellers podcast... My name is William Anthony. 